welcome back to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. And for today's episode of Debatable, we explore the issues surrounding the re-recordings of Taylor Swift's albums. Um, but we'd also use it as a jumping-off point for more general discussions about how media corporations treat small artists and even big artists in general. So this is actually tangentially related as well to a motion that I debated before, that went, this house believes that artists should have full ownership of their masters. This came with an info slide, and we'll be explaining later on what masters are. But we are discussing this because there are actually a lot to take away from this situation in terms of understanding the industry, as well as the struggles of artists in general. Because regardless of your position or stance towards artists, they are a big chunk of our culture, and they are very important, especially given... You know, we rely on them for entertainment this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that just speaks to like how we treat art in general. Like we undervalue it when it comes to how much we pay artists that we know, like locally. Yeah. Even though we rely on art for literally every aspect of our lives, uh, so I guess you can talk about Taylor Swift's issue uh, from the very beginning. Actually, the beginning of her career. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of bad blood here. Well, reference, there's a lot of bad blood. There's a lot of history there. It seems like a lot because she's, what, 31 years old right now? And she started, like, 16 years ago, right? Yeah, so we all have to go back to 2005 where Taylor Swift was a young artist who was just discovered by Big Machine Records and then she signed a contract with them. She was 15 at the time, I think. Again, I'm not sure. Um, don't come at me, Taylor Swift stands. I'm doing my best. But Taylor Swift released several hit albums and singles and went on to become one of the most successful pop artists in the world. We all know this. She released six albums whose masters all belong to Big Machine Records what ever are- since... Ever since she signed with them. Yeah, so I guess this is the time when like, we get to find out what masters even are. Yeah, so the motion that I mentioned earlier came with an info slide, actually. actually and the info slide says that a master is jargon used to refer to the underlying rights to a song. So literally, the master recording is the original recording or original version from which everything else stems. So a CD... A stream on Spotify, an appearance on a movie soundtrack being released publicly at all, all those are licensed by the holder of the master's rights. This also means that the holder of the master has control over the financial gains of the recording as well. Usually, the record label owns the masters of their artists, but in exchange for signing over the master rights to their recordings, artists are often given an advance, as well as something called a royalty percentage from all profits made off of the music. So this is what the arrangement was for Taylor Swift for a while, and her contract with the music label expired in 2018. Yeah, so this is where I know a little bit. I actually know a little bit Uh about this. uh Because after that contract expired in 2018, the issue blew up because Taylor Swift actually switched um, from Big Machine to Universal um, Republic Records. Uh, so she left Big Machine um, and brought a change in her contract to now also own her masters. But I'm not sure if she owned the masters that she produced with Big Machine. 
No, she didn't. So that's where the problem came in. So Big Machine sold to private equity group Ithaca Holdings, an entity owned by powerhouse music manager Scooter Braun. So you've probably heard who this person is. Yeah, Scooter Braun. Yeah. Scooter Braun. Like we everyone were making meme- jokes about. Yeah. yeah. People meme about this person, but they are a significant person in talking about Taylor Swift's history as well as all the bad blood that existed between the past, I don't know, in the past few years, I would say, or even the past few months, especially with the re-recording issue. Yeah, and the the difficult part here is that it's not really just Scooter Brown, but it's also the group that Scooter Brown represents. Because remember, we're talking about Ithaca Holdings. Mm-hmm. And the thing about the Holdings uh, company is that it's not just, you know, by itself. It's actually a company that was organized in order to hold and, and own and sort of control multiple other corporations, actually. So it's not just Scooter Brown. Scooter Brown is like the face of it, but as far as I know, like he is backed by just a lot of money and a lot of power. Yeah, so what happened there was, because Big Machine sold to this holdings that was controlled by Scooter, let's just call him Scooter. Scoot. See, Scoot. Our buddy Scoot. Our buddy Scoot, right? He then sold her masters to another company called Shamrock Holdings, another holdings for a reported... 300 million in 2019. So the problem here was Taylor Swift claimed that she was unaware of the sale to Bronze Company and called the deal my worst case scenario. Quote unquote, my worst case scenario. So this was alluding to Bronze's involvement in a number of feuds between her and the artists that he has managed. This is including Kanye West. Um, Swift also said that she had tried to buy back her masters from Big Machine, but that terms... But that the terms the label offered were intolerable. So it's kind of unfair in her opinion that she tried buying back the rights to her songs, but instead it was sold to someone else that she disagreed with. Someone that she claims was a toxic manipulator, someone who would align themselves with the likes of Kanye West, which we all know she had great disagreements with ever since that interruption that is now a meme that everyone knows of. Um, Well, it's not just that, right? It's... Um, it wasn't just the interruption at the awarding ceremony. Oh, yeah, it was like were. Beyonce. But it was also like, uh, the, there was like a phone call where Kanye was like, it would be so funny if I included you in my song. And then she was like, haha, yeah. But then she didn't know that. It would be like in a sexist way. Yeah, in a very sexist, yeah, yeah. Um, offensive manner. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, so eventually Taylor Swift uh, wrote a Tumblr post decrying both Borchetta, who was the owner before Big Machine, and Braun, the new Big Machine owner's record, whatever, person. They called them toxic manipulators, and her accusations were twofold. Braun, she says, is a bully, and now he owns her master's holdings, and Borchetta is a traitor for selling them to Braun behind her back without giving Swift a fair opportunity to buy her old masters for herself. So on social media, the response was sort of mixed. A lot of people were like, stand with Taylor, we stand with Taylor, hashtag, all of those things. While others were saying that, especially artists, like I think Justin Bieber was on the side of Braun actually when um, they were being attacked. He, they, I'm not sure what their pronouns are. To be safe, I'm just gonna call them Scoot. Uh, Some people are saying Scoot was just a misunderstood man. But you know, that's like an excuse for all men in general. So 
personally, and I think you know what my stance is, is here, I, I kind of side with Taylor Swift a bit on this issue as a Swifty-ish myself. I, I understand the the argument, though, in favor of our pal Scoot. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's the idea of contracts. Like, you, you signed your the rights to your masters to Scooter or Big Machine in this case. So, Big Machine has the right to do whatever it wants with those artists. Like, you cannot um, force the owner to do... Like, legally, the owner... Owns it and, yeah, and can it, decide. It, yeah. yeah. So I, I suppose that is the argument there. Like they were within their rights to do it. So I, I think that the quest, the issue here wasn't really about whether or not they could do it, but whether or not it was right that they had the power to even do it to begin with. Yeah, but the whole social media discussion and the sides people are taking, that's a whole different issue. I think there's a lot of sexist elements in there as well. Definitely, yeah. Um, but we're, we're not going to tackle that. I think that's another Pandora's box or can of worms or whatever the statement the is. Metaphor. Whatever the metaphor is these days. But basically, there's a lot of bad blood there that I don't want to touch. So we keep using just, bad blood. No, I, I mean... We, we started with bad blood and we keep using it. I mean, it's just another metaphor. It just so happens to be a Taylor Swift one. So, like, I'm gonna use it. Why not? Um, so, anyway, the sale, therefore, gave Braun, or our buddy Scoot, the rights to all master recordings of Swift's old music. Meaning, anyone who wanted to license one of the songs, or an album, or even parts of the song, had to get permission from him first. Instead of Taylor Swift, who was... Uh, like admittedly the person who wrote most of it um produced a lot of it and most of the time the record label is just there for distribution but that's a no you know another debatable issue like what's the role of a distributing house or a record deal a recording studio yeah recording (laughs) studio in general i forgot words but yeah we're going to tackle that later but that's that part of history that it was rather messy, and I know a lot of you were there. You were there online when it all... You were already alive. You were already alive. Like, I hope you're already alive. I mean, duh. This but, isn't NSYNC. This isn't Backstreet Boys. Yeah, this is this you is our... You were alive for this. This is our music history. You know, this is music history coming to life in front of us. So you were there. You know what took place online. Um, unless you're not a Swifty, which I guess is understandable... Because there's such a thing as being fatigued by all of the conversations on pop stars, you know? Yeah, uh, but I think in this case, it's much more than just a conversation about pop stars or celebrities. Because it really does talk about a very important issue about how we value ownership rights over intangible concepts like the right to a song, the right to lyrics or whatnot. So as we now know... The solution that Taylor Swift used was to basically re-record all um, her past works. If she could not regain ownership of her masters, then by like by hell is she gonna give up? Like she's gonna re-record it and change it up so that she has an exclusive right to the re-recorded versions and encourage as we are encouraging mm-hmm. you if you are a Swifty. To support those re-released versions, if you can afford it, because there's also like a debate about how some fans can't afford it and they feel like they're being ostracized from 
their fandoms because they can't afford it. That's a completely different issue. Yeah, but you don't need to buy it. Just stream it on the platforms that they're available in, like the YouTube channel, Taylor Swift, or the Spotify, the Apple Music, all that. Apple Music's paid though, right? Yeah. Well, to be fair, I I was referring more to the other premium like merchandise the, like the that's, re- that's related yeah. to, to that um but anyway uh so that was their uh, that was the solution that taylor swift used and during an interview um the family second she revealed that after the sale was made to our pal scoot she wanted to ensure that he got as little money from her songs as possible so the solution it was quite elegant in my opinion because wow what a loophole the solution now is to redirect all the fans to the re-released versions the the Taylor's version of all the songs Um, so that's the reason why even if you really like the original versions you might like actually you might like the original versions more but if you like it and you want to support the artist then you should probably look at the one that benefits the artist the most. Um, so that's going to be Fearless, Speak Now, Red, 1989, Reputation, um, excluding, I think, live versions, demo versions, uh, voice memos. That's more than 100 songs, actually. Um, so she already released Fearless, Taylor's version of Fearless, and just the internet had... A big old cry day or a cry month because because of that release. I remember I was at work when they released it. I listened to some songs. I didn't have time to listen to all the songs. I'm sorry, Taylor Swift fans out there. I will dedicate some time to breezing through all the songs. But I listened to some and I remember like people I was supposed to be at work with were also listening and we couldn't get anything done because the internet was just blowing up. But I guess it's a natural consequence of... Like, working from home, having access to the internet all day, and, you know, Taylor Swift in general. So, we didn't have a productive day at work. And, and that's, and also, I that's think, Taylor Swift's fault. Yeah, yeah and, and also, I just feel like in, in this, you know, atmosphere... What do you call that? This this envir- this In this economy... This pandesal. In, in this panorama... Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> where people are understandably feeling very anxious or in, in a very vulnerable state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you can't fault anyone for overly resonating with, you know, these things, especially because they do harken back to sort of a nostalgic time when, like, you know, things used to be brighter. And you just feel things all over again. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not that big a fan, you know, I respect it. But I used to be one of those toxic people. It's like, yeah, I don't wanna do I don't wanna have anything to do with that. You know, because of toxic masculinity. Thankfully it's one of the, the things that I feel like I've outgrown. Um, yeah, but where were you when the Taylor Swift songs released? Like, like what period in your life were you in? I was in my puberty stage. I originally? remember I remember um like having a lot of high school drama and then trying to find Taylor Swift songs that I could use to like explain my feelings. Like I was that kind of kid. I think in fifth grade, I, I think it was fifth grade when um, I think it was Love Story that became like a very big deal. Yeah, that was and, fifth grade. You know, the, I, I I'm in a I was in a very conservative Catholic uh, school where gender roles are very rigidly enforced. Um, and 
I, the teachers didn't outright encourage it. In fact, I feel like a lot of the faculty um, are part of the LGBT, but um, there was a sense that this is something that only the girls should like and um, feminine men. Um, and you should not, if you're a, a guy, you should not associate with those things. Why is your story so sad? That's so sad. No, but... Like it, it was, it was always sort of a guilty pleasure, not just for me, but also for a, a lot of us. I mean, it's a bop. Yeah. It's a fucking bop. Yeah, you know. Yeah, don't be ashamed that you yeah. like. They're trying to tell us how to feel. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> this love is difficult. <laughs> but anyway, let's go back to the debatable issues here, because as we, as I already mentioned, the argument here is just. Coming from the legal sense of ownership, like if you own the masters, um, you should have the right to do whatever you want with it, and that includes not giving the rights back to the original writers of the songs. Um, but that brings into the question: Should artists just, as a default, have ownership of their masters to begin with? Because the the argument here is that like. It was Taylor's fault because she was the first one who signed the rights over to Big Machine in the first place. And now she just wants to, you know, reverse tie and make, like, not face the consequences of those actions. So the the question in the motion is, should artists, just as a default, have ownership over their masters? And that cannot be removed through a provision of contract. I mean, there are a lot of artists who have very similar thoughts on this and it's a very clear yes, right? That artists should have ownership of their masters. Like Taylor Swift herself in an Instagram post just a few months back said that artists should have their own work for so many reasons. But the most screamingly obvious one is the fact that the art is theirs and they're the ones who know that body of work the most. Prince famously told Rolling Stone back in 1996, I wasn't born yet, but this issue was already a big deal even back then. They said that if you don't own your masters, your master owns you. And I kind of agree with that. Yeah, but but then if it's so one-sided, what's the argument for opposition in this motion? For this one, I had to consult my brother because he works... I mean, he doesn't you know, work like he, music. <laughs> he he's in the music industry for his band and he handles an organization that's basically like a record label. So they mm. have artists and they manage them. And he says the benefit of having like the masters owned by the record label is that there's uniformity in dealing with like contracts by all artists. That's one. It makes it much more efficient. Another thing would be that like, it gives artists more time to focus on their actual art as opposed to the business side of it. Because the business side see, can yeah. be overwhelming. So not everyone can be Taylor Swift that just does it all. Like, she produces, she manages, she deals and negotiates on her own. A lot of people are not able to do so. So they argue, or at least this is one of the arguments. Honestly, my brother is on the side that masters should be owned by artists. But, you know, just for formality, they also understand the side of record labels. And basically, it was because of that efficiency and the fact that more art would generally be churned out if someone else had to deal with the technical side of things. Actually, I was also thinking that maybe you can make a pro-artist argument out of, out of this in opposition by saying that, look, 
um the ownership of the masters should not be like set in stone it should still be up for negotiation because in a lot of cases if you are a new like very small creator right or a, a very new artist the ownership of your masters is a very strong bargaining chip actually so there might be some like sort of avant-garde type um artist or musician where no one wants to take a chance on them um and giving up like signing over um the eventual rights to their masters actually would give them more of a bargaining chip or leverage in order to be given that chance to begin with so the the trade off here is it might not be optimal for you in the long run but in the short run where like you find it very difficult to find anyone who is willing to take a chance on you and you really do believe in your art then like it might be a valid way to get that start so like it, it's basically an a, a suboptimal future versus the worst case in the short term yeah but i feel like that argument preys on the vulnerability of these artists right like you're desperate enough to not consider i mean honestly and this is not the thing on taylor swift like they were very young when they signed it and obviously probably were desperate for that big shot like the dreamy-eyed young wonder wanting to be famous and be on the big stage so it's understandable why they would want to use that bargaining chip but on the other hand like should she have been given that opportunity at such a young age yeah um this actually brings us to another kind of debatable topic here which is should artists be able to sign contracts below the age of majority so in this case taylor swift um was entered into that contract as a party um i i doubt that she herself signed it it, it was probably her legal guardian who signed it on her behalf but in general if you're not of the age of majority you might not be like of the most um competent um mindset and this isn't even just you know exclusive to taylor swift only because There are lots of other cases wherein you have minors that really want their start somewhere, kind of desperate for that money, that they enter into ridiculously disadvantageous um, deals. So uh, a case that I learned um, a few years ago was about Brooke Shields. If if you know her, um, she's a, an an she's an actress of a little bit of popularity. But anyway, um, years ago, decades ago, um, she was 10 years old um, when she got several modeling jobs from this dude named Gross, which is like, you know, <laughs> foreshadowing, gross. foreshadowing, right? Should have seen um, it coming. So one of the jobs that uh, one of the modeling gigs that she got as a 10 year old, by the way, was to pose in the nude in a bathtub. Oof. Right? Big oof energy. Uh, and, and the problem with that is, like, the, actually, the big portfolio of the, the series of photos was um, named Sugar and Spice, which is just another layer of yikes. Yikes. Right? Um, and the reason why she got into that mess was because um, her mother, who was her legal guardian, signed on her behalf 
um, two contracts. The first contract said that they gave the photographer, so gross, um, the right and permission to copyright um, and use and publish and republish whatever photos that they would take for any um, purpose whatsoever, right? Um, and they also waived their right, and this is a second contract, they also waived their right to inspect or approve the finished photograph. And it wasn't even for a lot of money. Like, it was several hundreds of dollars. And actually, the the case came about because um, Brooke Shields was already an adult, and she saw that um, nude photo of her as a child on, like, a billboard or something. So she tried to get it down, and she tried to take back the ownership of those um, photos. And the court in that case said, well, I'm sorry, the contract, even though it was made on your behalf by your mother, is still binding upon you as an adult. Damn. Yeah, so that's that's really tragic, and it's something that's very common among small creators, especially creators that are not of the age of majority. So I guess it applies to Taylor Swift as well. So that's, that's like, that's the issue on... Like her, her age, and sadly, it doesn't really factor, right? Yeah, and, and the the thing here is like, just media companies in general, <laughs> they they tend to kind of be predatory in a lot of ways. There are, to be fair, a lot of exceptions, but there are for sure practices that are just so predatory especially for smaller creators so the the biggest i think the biggest name here would aside from taylor swift obviously mm-hmm. is buzzfeed uh because there, for years now you've been getting like a steady stream of buzzfeed creators who've been leaving buzzfeed like it was a trend before like on youtube right yeah like, like why, why i left, left BuzzFeed? buzzfeed yeah so um uh, apparently, people in BuzzFeed have their content and their ideas and all of their videos that they worked so hard on um, to be owned by BuzzFeed. So if someone says, oh, I have a great idea for an episode, I have a great idea for a series, um, they can't use that idea for their own series because it's BuzzFeed's intellectual property. So if you look at Worth It, right... Um, the creators of Worth It made their own thing. They spun off of BuzzFeed. And they review some of their videos. They try to recreate the things that they ate on Worth It. But they cannot continue the Worth It series on their new platform. Because that is BuzzFeed's property talaga. Damn. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just like the, the nice examples, right? That's a nice example. Um, but, but, in reality, there were so many messier examples of people needing to start all over again because the best ideas were wasted on a company that did not really give them creative control. Um, and this leads to another problem with BuzzFeed and, by extension, a lot of other um, media corporations and outlets in general, is that if they hire you, if they, you know accept you, give you a chance, quote-unquote, they will not allow you to work with um, channels or companies or other artists that they do not want you to work with. So ultimately, the creator and their creativity is subservient 
to the BuzzFeed brand, or in in this case, like the the brand of the recording studio, the brand of the brand of the label, any brand that yes. them. yeah, yeah, and that that's the reason why we we always have like hesitations whenever we want to get like sponsorships or mm-hmm, anything mm-hmm. because like we do not want to be beholden to any brand. We um, are our own brand. Thank we, you. We try to be our own brand. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, like, corporations, they know this. They know that a lot of creators are kind of, like, hesitant. They want to protect themselves. So the strategy here is a lot of them, not just recording studios, but, like, media corporations in general, maybe, like, um, media networks, or whatever, mm-hmm. they try to sneak provisions into contracts that are ultimately disadvantageous for the creator. So they will say, for example, oh, you, you own your content naman. Um, we'll only take a certain cut, but there are going to be some sketchy provisions. Like, for example, um, we know some small content creators, um, who are contacted by a media company. And for legal reasons, let's redact all the names. Yeah, cause you know this, I know this. Mm-hmm. We need to redact these names. Um, but they were promised, um, so many good things. But what was strange was that there apparently was a confidentiality clause where they were, if they signed the agreement, they could not complain to anybody about it. Like they could not bring it to anyone, not probably not even their lawyer or something because it's absolutely confidential or something. I don't know. That's my interpretation as a law student, not a lawyer. Not legal advice. I heard, by the way, that some people were like, if, if I make, if I make it a drinking game where people have to drink every time I say that it's not legal advice, they, they just die or something. <laughs> but anyway, it's not legal advice, but for these particular small time creators, they found it very sketchy that there was a confidentiality clause at all. And for some reason, the firm reserved the right to sell not just parts of the episode not just episodes not just like the content the content mismo there was a provision where the entire concept the entire freaking show could be sold to a third person unilaterally without the consent of the creators so i asked the creators like um what? What? <laughs> what? <How>? <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, the bad part apparently was that when the creators first read it, it was just chill. It it seemed very above board, nothing sketchy. But that was because it was buried in legal, friendly, friendly sounding legalese terms that sounded very neutral. Yeah, and no one really reads contracts, right? People usually just agree to what was said during the meetings. And most of the times, the meetings are just a front. They're a lie. The mo- All of the content is actually in the paper that they submit after the meeting is done or before the meeting even happens. Yeah, so, so sabi ko, um, look, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> that, that's this what is I said. not legal advice. Look, I'm not a lawyer, but maybe you should try to negotiate for the changing of these terms. So, sabi niya, um, apparently, binigyan sila ng assurance na, we would never do this to you. We would never do this then to you. Then take it out of it. <laughs> and then I was just like, then take, take it, it out. out. And then the, dun, the, dun, dun, the, dun, the TikTok, <laughs> the, the TikTok music comes in. Right? Then do it. What are you waiting for? <laughs> take it out. But they did it. But, and, but they didn't. And like, yeah. um, they were saying, um, uh, 
parang kakausapin daw sila ng legal team and they're just like we're just babies we're just babies you can't really talk to them uh, so they, it it fell through um, and now unfortunately their situation is being used as fodder for content by us oops <laughs> with their consent ba? with their consent with their consent yeah yeah so that's quite a big problem because there doesn't seem to be adequate like protection measures for small creators i mean you you could educate yourself and that's one of the advocacies of my brother right i mean the the, the existence of their org is to combat a lot of the legal like barriers to prevent artists from actually succeeding or the legal not barriers but the actual legal things that companies use to betray their artists in a way quote-unquote betrayal i mean some people would argue it's not betrayal it's just business but obviously that's up for debate and that's why we're having this conversation so again with taylor swift what then she had to do was re-record right which leads us to the like last issue it's a minor issue how does she get away with it like legally speaking how can she re-record old songs and still get away with it Um, without copyright issues being raised by our friend Scoot. Well, again, <laughs> this is not legal advice. I am not. I am not competent enough to talk about these things with authority. But I have read that apparently Big Machine Records, um, when they entered into that contract, there was a clause called an original production clause, and that clause basically prohibited Taylor Swift from making her future songs sound exactly like the original versions. So the key word here was exactly. So it doesn't have to be exactly the same. So Taylor needed to make sure that her new recordings sounded distinguishable from her older um, recordings, but still retained the spirit of you know the 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 art that she put out and and i think like it's actually different because like the message is different um in in the re-release just from like an art stud perspective it might not sound so different but the fact that like considering all the circumstances surrounding the re-release it is it gives like a completely different message yeah from it's an its art own stud. work yeah. it's its own work now and Like obviously there were parts that she did try to explicitly extinguish. I know you're saying like the implicit things, right? But explicitly there are a lot of changes as well, like subtle lyric changes. Like people were noticing changes with the instrumentals. People were noticing noticing changes with the backup singers and the way that they were singing the backups. Like a lot of these small details, they do add up to the point that you know, big machine they can complain, but legally speaking. Taylor's in the clear. So, like, kudos to her legal team and to her for managing yeah. to find all those loopholes. Like, that's the kind of sneaky behavior that I can respect here on Debatable. Well, the the copyright law that is relevant is actually really quite complicated. And it, <laughs> we could talk about it, but I feel like Tom Scott on YouTube actually made a really nice, compelling video 
better than you and I could ever hope to make at this point in our lives, mm-hmm. honestly. And they have legal authority. <laughs> to they actually did um, consult with yeah. lawyers. Yeah. So they they, they're not lawyers, there. but they, they got consultations. Yeah. So anyway, if you want to learn more about the different ways that copyright works, because it's not just like, um, you could say that um, the lyrics might be copyrighted, and that might be true, but it depends on what was copyrighted to begin with. Because you can copyright like a song in its entirety. You can also copyright just the lyrics. You can copyright the sheet music. You can copyright like a particular performance of that song, right? So it really depends on the subject matter that we're talking about. What is the thing that is being copyrighted that you want to protect or that you want to, you know, move away from? Yeah. So... Like just check out check out the Tom Scott one. Yeah, like, we'll link it. We'll link we'll it. link it. Yeah. Before we end our episode, we'd once again like to invite everyone to debatable intervarsity. It's our tournament that will be held on July three to four of twenty twenty one. So phase one is currently ongoing and it's about to end soon. I believe it ends on May thirteenth, eleven fifty nine p.m. Uh, GMT plus eight. So if you're interested in joining then kindly register in the link that we'll leave in the description and look through our social media accounts to find out more about the tournament as well. So that's it for this episode of Debatable. Uh, Apologies, it was a rather rambly one, but I personally have a lot of feelings about this. Kyle, I'm not sure if you have a lot of feelings about this. Eh, eh, You're okay. (laughs) I'm okay. Yeah, you have some feelings about this. I have like 10% of your feelings. Yeah, so so I, I... you know, as a Swifty, this is like a little proud moment. But I'm obviously, I can't claim to be a really, really big fan. Like, I haven't gotten to the extent of others. But like, I am a fan. So I'm very happy that this is happening. And I think there's a lot of interesting things that people can learn about this situation. Yeah. So hopefully, you learned some stuff. Or at least we're entertained. Um, regardless of what you're doing right now as you are listening. And that's it for this episode. We'll see you in the next one. Bye! Bye-bye.